great, great to be with you tonight um, on this uh, sunny June early evening. Um, as uh, Rob said, we're, we're kind of back in Daniel 1, um, but linked with Colossians 3, as you'll see on there, uh, and, and looking at what, is it, what does it look to, work, to do Colossians 3 in a Daniel 1 world? Um, so we'll, we'll be looking at that tonight. Um, Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and, and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And in Colossians 3, Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, 
not by way of eye service as people pleases, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's the word of the Lord. Um, let's pray as we start. Father, we pray um, that you will open the ears and the eyes of our hearts to see and hear your um, your blessed word to us. Father, please let the meditations of our hearts uh, be pleasing to you uh, tonight. Uh, speak uh, through me. Uh, let this message be uh, your words to all of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, great. So, the Bible has a lot to say about work. Um, uh, from the beginning of the Bible, it talks a lot about work. Uh, we were made to work, Genesis 1, uh, verse 28. The first instruction God gives to mankind is to work, be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. Uh, and we spend the greatest part of our waking adult lives doing it. Uh, complete the work God started. Work is good. Um, and then famously, also, you know, we have that passage in Colossians, don't we? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, um, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, the difficulty is we work for men and women, don't we? Uh, we work in secular workplaces uh, very often. Um, but we, we need to work heartily because we're working for the Lord. Um, so there's a, there, 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 is a, there is a problem there um, very often that we experience. And, and one of the reasons is because it all got harder when Adam and Eve fell. Uh, in the garden, and, and work became thorns and thistles and sweat. Um, if you think about it, the first employee ever was Adam, and the performance appraisal was pretty brutal. Um, but despite all the highs and lows, with all the struggles, our identity very much is tied up with our work. Um, think about it. What's the second thing you ask someone when you, someone new when you meet them? Uh, after telling them your name, you ask, what do you do, don't you? <laughs> That's what we do. Um, our identities are very much tied up with work. And fortunately, though, it's not all doom and gloom. And I think we're often guilty of that when we start thinking about work um, as, as, as Christians as well, um, thinking that it's all the thorns and thistles and sweat. But work can often be fulfilling uh, or useful or exciting, hard but good. Um, and that instruction from Colossians 3 to work for the Lord and not for men, knowing that we ultimately work um, for the glory of God and not for you know, our, our, our earthly bosses, um, that does free us up. Um, you know, our identities aren't tied up with our work. Um, and I think that, 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 that enables us, that, that liberating idea enables us to work much more freely when our identities aren't so tied up with, with what we do day to day. Um, but even when things are going well, there's a more fundamental question, I think, that, 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 that faces us more and more. What do I do when I want to work faithfully in a faithless working world? What do I do when I want to work faithfully, when, when I want to do Colossians 3 work in a Daniel 1 world? Um, because leaving the ordinary kind of ups and downs of work aside, so unless you're working for a Christian organization, 
uh, you know, or a church or a seminary or perhaps a, a good social enterprise or something, um, it's unlikely you'll be working for an organization where your Christian values and that organization's values align perfectly. Um, but not all of us can be pastors or work for Christian charities. Um, and that's great. We need Christian teachers and accountants and Tesla assembly line workers and bin men. We need Christians in all walks of life. Um, but more and more, the questions for Christians um, isn't, does my company at least not contradict my Christian values? You know, can I work here and it's doing good things and it's not actively contradicting my Christian values? Um, but how, how do we work in companies that actively compromise my Christian values in what they say and do? Uh, you might have seen it come up in your LinkedIn feed or something like that over the last couple of weeks. If you're on LinkedIn, uh, you know, it's Pride Month and companies go out of their way to promote their inclusive credentials. And on my way into the office, I walk from Moorgate Elizabeth Line Station, and there's a big bank there, and it's like two and a half, three stories high uh, pride flag in the, in, the, in the foyer at the moment. Um, and they're literally flying the flag and nailing their colors to the mast um, on where they stand. What, what, what do you do if you're a Christian that works in an organization um, like that? Now, there was a time when companies' only purpose was maximizing returns for shareholders, and there was a... Milton Friedman, an economist, said that's the only reason why companies exist. Um, but now companies feel like they've got to be on the right side of history, isn't it? That's, that, that's a big thing. Um, although, you know, I, I, I hope they realize sooner rather than later that one day church history will be world history. Um, and that's the right side of history that we all want to be on. But it might be less personal or direct than those kinds of examples. Um, what do you do when you wouldn't or couldn't agree with what your organization is involved with as a Christian, even if you're not directly involved? You know, say you're working for a bank. Banks do good things, but banks also serve gam gambling companies. Or they've got com branches in, in, in authoritarian countries where Christians are oppressed. Um, I was reading an article this week, um, an interview with Dan Walker, who's the was the presenter of BBC Breakfast and Football Focus and a famous kind of TV personality, Strictly Come Dancing, um, and he's now changed jobs. He's now a TV presenter on, or news presenter on Channel 5. Um, and he is very, very well known as a Christian. He's a, and, and he has uh, spoken about how he um, has been in work environments in, in a kind of high-pressured you know, and, and, and more liberal kind of working environment in, in the media where... Uh, people have been swearing and blaspheming all around him, and he's going to ask them to stop. And sometimes people um, are very ashamed and comply, and other times they double down and turn the air blue around him. Um, and that's more acceptable than saying that you're a Christian. Um, what do we do in those, uh, in, those, in those cases? Now, Daniel speaks to some of this in this first chapter, um, and that's what I want to look at today. What does working for the Lord look like in a workplace that doesn't share our values? How do we work faithfully in a faithless working world? And I think Daniel gives us a framework to, to think about that with two points that are exactly the same, um, although the emphasis changes a bit. Remember who called you to work where you are. Um, so what do we have here in Daniel? The holy city's fallen. The last king's reign has been a story of defeat and humiliation and submission and exile. And you know, to all appearances, the God of Jerusalem has been defeated by the gods of, 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 of Babylon. That's why there's this big emphasis in, the, in, the, in that first chapter on 
the temples and the temple vessels and, and, and the gods of, of, of Babylon. Um, but it's easy to forget this isn't happening by chance. Right? That Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they're members of the Jewish elite, but finding themselves in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar is a deliberate act of Israel's own God. Um, and that is what the chapter makes abundantly clear. Um, but Daniel 1, surprisingly, doesn't really talk about the reasons for the exile. Um, the sin over many generations. Uh, perhaps because it looks back from after the exile. Um, perhaps because that doesn't really explain the presence in Babylon of these godly young men, such as Daniel and his friends. Um, and they do later on, chapter 9 and so on, acknowledge the sinfulness they share with the whole of Israel. But that sinfulness is just not appealed to as the explanation for this exile. Um, the only explanation we're given is that this comes from God, verse 2. That Daniel and his friends are in that position, in that court, because God has placed them at there and, call, and, and put them at there at that time and called them to be uh, in those roles at this time. You see, the first thing Daniel tells the people in exile, and that goes for us as well, uh, who live in a society that is not Christian, and often not supportive of Christians. And 1 Peter talks about us being exiles in a world that isn't our permanent home, doesn't it? Um, the first thing Daniel tells them is that the reasons for their exile might not be clear, or the most important thing to know. But what is important to know is that as a place for them to be, it was secure, and God had a purpose for them right there and then. And they need to realize, and you and I, need to realize that they are not mere pawns on a political or a geographical chessboard. To be in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar is not to be out of the control of God. And then, even the temple vessels in those Babylonian temples actually isn't a humiliation that it might look like, um, but a way of God's honor being silently proclaimed in those pagan temples. They didn't take the vessels. God had given them to Nebuchadnezzar, or lent them at least, they go back eventually. And so when Daniel and his friends are brought into the Nebuchadnezzar's court, their situation could look as hopeless as you'd first think the situation is for those temple vessels, raided and put in those pagan temples. Because if we think we have it hard in an often hostile working world, that's probably not a patch on what Daniel and his friends faced. You know, so they're given foreign names, um, uh, put under a foreign official, and now they're given a foreign education and diet and being prepared to serve in a foreign court. Um, it's just not where the people of God were meant to be. In a society uh, where their just laws and uh, their good laws had set them apart from other nations, uh, with the temple where God dwelled with them in their midst, that's where they were meant to be. And that's what foreign means here. Isn't it? They feel far from God. We, you know, we think we live in a secular society, though, um, and it's completely different to that, but it isn't. Um, our society just worships different idols. Money, power, status, identity, the opinion of people, being on the right side of history. Um, and even if we live in a country with all of this incredibly rich Christian heritage, we can well feel like Daniel and his friends, especially when we come under pressure to do and say the things that our society and our workplaces our corporate culture and our values expect of us. We can all feel like foreigners on a Monday, in exile. But the first thing we need to realize about working faithfully in a faithless working world is that God has put us here right now, right here, because that is where he 
wanted to put us. The, uh, Lloyd Blankfein, he was the CEO of Goldman Sachs, the U.S. investment bank. He said, um, and he was mocked when he testified at the U.S. Congress after the big financial crisis, and he said um, he and his organization were doing God's work. Um, and after all, someone else had described Goldman as a vampire squid. <laughs> um, but maybe he was right. Nebuchadnezzar, who took Judah into exile, was doing God's work, preparing uh, God's people for repentance and reform, and ultimately for the Savior to be born from them after they'd gone back. Uh, Cyrus, still a pagan king, we heard about him at the end of the chapter there, let them return. Um, and he was doing God's work in that, wasn't he? In returning God's people uh, and, and providing for them in the meantime, similar to the, the pharaohs in Moses' time. Um, and when we kind of realize those things, uh, it is a good question to ask, how can I be faithfully working in my work context? Um, but that's not where we should begin. What we should do is, in fact, what we should do is, in fact, not the right question to start with. Now, the first thing we see about working faithfully in a faithless world is that God is faithfully working, even in and through the faithless working world. See, he's acted on his promises, hasn't he? He's protected a people, even if they've been rebellious. He's testifying to his glory, even in those pagan temples. Um, and verse 21, Daniel lived to see the days of Cyrus. Now, you can look at the Cyrus cylinder in the British Museum here in London uh, with those instructions from King Cyrus to let the people go, um, and, and God has promised all of these things. He is faithfully working even when it looks like that is not happening. So the first thing is, don't despair. This is God's doing, and he is at work. It might feel like we're in exile, um, but God has put us right here, right now, to work and do his work where he has placed us. And he may be using you in ways known, unknown and unseen. So there are many ways our faith shapes our work. Um, one who's seeing the workplace as a mission field. Um, we can live in a distinctive way and have opportunities to speak to colleagues we wouldn't otherwise have. We would never meet those people. You might be the only Christian they meet, um, or no. Uh, or we might have the opportunity to rise to positions of influence and, and work to improve the ethical foundation of how we do business. Um, there are ways that we can redeem... Um, what, for example, fashion design or architecture or whatever could look like in a new creation world, um, not just what we have in a fallen world. Uh, or we might be the best accountants or lawyers or bricklayers or plumbers or teachers or artists we can possibly be uh, using the talents God has given us to glorify him. Maybe Daniel and his friends did all of those things. But there's more to why God placed faithful men in that faithless environment, I think. Over and over and over, the Bible shows us examples of God doing this. Joseph and Esther and others. Why? I want to hazard some suggestions. Can you think how much harder it would have been for exiles in Babylon if Daniel and his friends were not in the positions of power they were put, they were put in? Can you think how hard... It would have been to prepare for the return 70 years later if no young Israelites had gone through what you could probably call the Babylonian civil service fast stream program, going back with the skills and experience they picked up, like Nehemiah. Can you think how they would have been a moderating influence on a regime 
an empire that violently conquered other nations knowing that there's a higher authority to whom they are accountable. Can you think what it would say if essentially we said God can't do anything good in this place? Jonah had that attitude towards Nineveh. And yet God saved 120,000 people in that city that Jonah thought was beyond salvation. Now there are situations and professions Christians clearly can't be in. Prostitution, drug smuggling, things we should work to stop, things that are inherently wicked. But I think we see in Daniel 1 here um, a, a surprising level of freedom for God's people to work faithfully in a faithless world, in exile. Um, Joseph, Daniel, Esther and others in the Bible show us that God may place us in those positions. Um, and that, that is the reality that within which we are called to serve. You see, if we constantly pretend to be in Jerusalem when actually we're in Babylon, we're going to deny that God can and does use us in an imperfect world to do his work, moderating evil, but also bringing renewal and hope. Uh, we, we can't abandon imperfect organizations because God, because God doesn't abandon imperfect people. Jesus stepped into an imperfect, fallen, broken world. He preached in synagogues that were theologically compromised. Um, he had followers who were members of the emperor's household who financially supported him. He worked and died for a world that was set on murdering him. That puts our dilemmas in context somewhat, I think. So if God has put us here in the UK in the year of our Lord, 2022, we need to be faithful where we are. And Daniel, working for that Babylonian emperor, was mercy from God to, to that regime, whether they knew it or not. And, and similarly, we can be salt and light, preserving mercy to an undeserving world and undeserving organizations. And we can have faith that God can and will do good there, even if we don't see it. In fact, we're called to be light and salt in places that are dark and blind. Um, but that's not the whole story of Daniel 1, is it? And for the second time, Daniel gives us a point in our framework, and it's exactly the same as the first one. Remember who called you to work where you are. So we're all familiar with The Apprentice, I think. Um, we're ambitious young men and women stab each other in the back or basically do whatever is necessary to uh, get an opportunity to work with Lord Sugar. I think other countries have had the show as well. Other people have led them. I kind of forget who starred in them. Um, but wouldn't Daniel and his friends do what is necessary to get ahead in this situation? Isn't that what's going to be the natural thing for them to do, the easy path after all, if God has put them there, surely that means they should play the game, shouldn't it? Um, but the opportunity offered them wasn't without consequences. Um, that whole exercise, all of that training, all of that food, all of that instruction, all of that three years was about assimilation. Making them like us from the Babylonian's perspective. Um, and eating the food was a step too far for Daniel and, and his friends because that food wouldn't have been prepared in line with the Jewish food laws, um, which were, you know, let's remember again, 
in large part exactly because it showed that Israel was not like the other nations. Part of the function of those laws were to show that they were not like the other nations. Um, so we've seen earlier there may be more going on in God's purposes than we know. But if Daniel wants us to know that there may be more going on than what we can see about our faithless working world, he wants us to know there's also not less than what we can see. So maybe you've heard the expression, uh, knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit, wisdom is knowing you don't put it in a fruit salad. And to paraphrase that, faith is trusting God as a purpose for where he's placed you, even if you don't quite see the purpose of it. Wisdom is knowing that God doesn't want you to forget that he has placed you wherever you are. And his character doesn't change. It's, it's, it's interesting. We all, whether it's Joseph or Esther or Daniel or others, you know, we always see that when, when, when we're asked to directly do something that goes against our faith, when we're asked to take part or support something that denies God or are in a position where we should speak, we need to draw a line, even in exile. Um, no, Daniel probably managed to stay under the radar later on when, when his friends had to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, but they weren't so fortunate. They uh, were spotted and they were thrown in the, in the furnace, weren't they? Um, and for Daniel, a time came when he had to obey the law and not King Darius's law. Um, he had to obey the Lord and not King Darius's law to only worship um, King Darius, and he was thrown into the lion's den. We don't have lion's dens, but... I think pressure on Christians in the workplace is going to become more and more intense. To publicly support things they can't. To do things they don't agree with. Um, and there are going to be times when we can stay off the radar. Uh, but there are also going to be times when we're called to speak up. And wisely and politely and firmly. As this example of Daniel shows us. We don't have to be up in arms all the time. Um, but we can wisely, politely, firmly and graciously um, state why we can't go along with what we're asked to do. And I, th I think this is going to become more and more difficult though. Um, and there will be consequences for us. Um, and I said we don't have lion's dens, but uh, I'm wondering if the terror of a social media pile-on uh, is that much less dangerous or threatening than hungry lions very often um, and I spoke about Dan Walker earlier and you know, he, one of the things that he doesn't do is he's never worked on Sundays and he's been laughed out of interviews when he said he doesn't work on Sundays because he goes to church on Sundays Sundays are the Lord's Day um, he's lost significant work opportunities um, financially it's been it, there have been consequences um, and yet, you know, the Lord has kept him and preserved him and, and prospered him in his field of work. Um, but not without very real consequences. But we need to decide who it is that we're working for ultimately to make those kinds of decisions. It's interesting, it's not just the hot-button issues. Um, pride uh, in America, a lot of companies um, uh, are, are exercised by uh, abortion at the moment and, and, and this whole kind of cultural shift happening there um, but something new I saw recently was during Ramadan um, uh, a lot of the people at the firm I used to work for um, 
in, in the city who aren't Muslims are fasting for Ramadan in support of uh, Muslim colleagues fasting during that time. Um, you know, and one of those things again. If you're not doing it, you know, are you are you Islamophobic? Are you do you have something? Are you are, are you full of hate? You know, we jump to that kind of language, isn't it? Um, and the pressure can be very subtle. You know, why aren't you doing this? Do you have something against? Do you want to sh don't you want to show solid solidarity? Um, and those kind of questions are going to are, are going to be on our table. Um, we can be confronted with those things more and more. And Daniel challenges us. Um, what are we going to do in those situations? Um, we have, we have a, a, an incredible amount of freedom to work in places that we wouldn't think um, Christians can fruitfully work in. But what do we do when that point comes and we have to choose uh, who our ultimate uh, master is? Um, but we're also reassured, aren't we, that Daniel, who lives at court, who stands by the side of the king and serves the empire, is the same person who's taken his stand and kept himself pure. Um, you know, so it, it can happen. Now, we've got to be real. For a gentle, Gentile court official to be so accommodating was sufficiently remarkable um, and an unusual experience that it needs to be explained, Daniel, one, you know, the, the, the Lord made this happen. Um, and through the centuries, believers have had to take their stand, and uh, they've had to, you know, they've known that it might mean loss or perhaps suffering or martyrdom. Um, and whatever is meant by by God honoring those who honor Him, in one Samuel two, verse thirty, it's not that He always grants safety and protection to them, but it does happen. It does happen, um, and their faith sees the hand of God at work. Calvin said, you know, God can inspire quite unexpected attitudes in friends or foes. Uh, and we're too quick, I think, to think that we'll have a negative response if we speak up when we're asked to do that or support um, something our faith disagrees with. Now, Paul in Colossians 3 puts his finger on why this is so difficult. When we work for men and not for the Lord in the first instance, we'll always be tempted to choose expediency over faithfulness. The path of least resistance is always going to go one way in that case. Fortunately, he also writes to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 10, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Um, Jesus was tempted at the start of his ministry. The devil seeking to compromise him right there and then from the beginning. Um, but he didn't yield because he knew the cost. Because he knew his father's faithfulness. And because Jesus was faithful and remaining steadfast now, he expects us and enables us to be faithful, doesn't he? We can withstand the temptation to put expediency above faithfulness. Uh, we can choose to serve the Lord and not men. Uh, in Revelation, God tells John, I'm making all things new. That goes for our work as well. Uh, he is redeeming all things, including our work, to be that good thing that Genesis 1 tells us it is and what God made us for. 
And just like Daniel lived to see the days of Cyrus, when Judah would go back to Jerusalem, uh, we will see that day come for our work too, for all eternity. And in the meantime, while we're in exile, let's be faithful and wise. And remembering that God placed us here, but also that God placed us here. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy uh, to know that uh, you have placed us to do your work, that you use us even in situations um, that can be incredibly frustrating um, and feel like uh, we might be alone. Um, we very much feel uh, that sense of exile. Um, and yet, in examples like Daniel and others in the Bible, we see uh, how you are faithful um, to them even in those situations father we pray as we uh, think about our own work um, as we look towards this week and the rest of this month and the rest of this year and uh, everywhere you've placed us to be um, that we will experience your uh, spirit guiding us uh, comforting us um, preparing the way for us to do your work uh, in those places father we uh, pray that we will be salt and light um, in every place that we're called to work and that people will come to know you uh, through us, that they will see there's something different uh, about us and about the way we conduct ourselves. Um, Father, we pray that people will come to know you, uh, that people will be saved and we will be rejoice one day in glory to see what you've accomplished um, in and through us, um, even when it seems like they're very meager efforts. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.